south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 318, covering the week of July 25th through July 29, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page, where you can see this podcast and all of our other lectures that we put out there, our Abbeville U videos. It's a great resource, again, free of charge. If you like those videos on YouTube, make sure you click on that super thanks button underneath the video. It's a little heart. You can donate to the Institute that way. You can also go to abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. You can find all our social media accounts there. You can also find our link to download our mobile app if you want it on your computer. You can also search for our mobile app on your mobile device and your app store. It's free of charge to you. While you're at abbevilleinstitute.org, though, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition, a great free resource for you just for giving us an email address. You'll get on our email list, which means you're going to get emails from us sometimes six or seven days a week. Please do not unsubscribe. I know it can be a lot, but we always send you the articles that we publish every day. We also send you notifications of upcoming events or things that we're doing. For example, as I'm recording this last night, we had one of our Zoom webinars. We had Dr. Jeff Rogers, who is an Associated Scholar of the Institute, give a presentation on William Gilmore Sims. It was a fantastic presentation. You know about those things if you're on the email list. So you want to be on the email list so you get notified and you can get involved in our activities. As always, though, if you like those things, if you like the podcast, if you like the website, if you like the mobile app, if you like the videos we put out, if you like the events that we do, if you like all those things, please consider tax-deductible tax donation to the Institute, if I could speak today. Uh, we do exist on your generous contributions alone, so uh, we do appreciate anything you can give us. You know, We can donate monthly, annually, or one-time gift. There's all kinds of ways. Just go to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on the Donate button, and you can get it set up. All right. As always, though, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you like it. Let people know your articles. Our, our articles are great. We're not on Facebook anymore, but you can share our material on Facebook. So uh, you can do that. Um, help spread the word, right? Get more people involved. Okay, so let's talk about the material we had this week. There's a whole lot going on right now in various areas of the South. And on my own podcast, The Brian McClanahan Show, I've talked about some of these things in Virginia, right? Virginia is kind of the epicenter for some things right now. You've had uh, a woman named Ann McLean. Uh, essentially excoriated in the press because she had the audacity to go on uh, a, a radio program in Richmond and say that secession wasn't treason and that Lee is a great American and we should admire Robert E. Lee. This is in Virginia now, and uh, Lee, a Virginian, she's being raked over the coals for this. She was appointed by the governor of Virginia to a historical board, and now the left wants her removed. And um, It's just sad what we're seeing with these nincompoops on the left. These people really are stupid. And then, of course, you have Senator Tim Kaine, uh, who was potentially the vice president of the United States at one point, um, proposing a bill that would remove Robert E. Lee's name from Arlington House. I mean, and the funny thing about that, you know, there, there's, well, this is a relatively recent development that he's been attached to the, to the building. It was his house, and there was a postcard uh, that I found from uh, early 20th century that had, uh, you know, Lee's home right on it. So everyone knew this was Robert E. Lee's home. And uh, that this was his house, and so it was just natural in the 50s to put his name on there. We're at the, we're at the centennial of the war, and uh, almost at that point. And so why not add his name to 
the to Arlington House. It was his home. It was his wife's home, of course, and then his home. This is just the stupid stuff we're seeing on a regular basis. These people really have no concept of anything but the destruction of society and destruction of traditional society. And and that actually speaks to some of the things we, we published this week, particularly the piece on Wednesday by Lafayette Lee. Now, he's a new writer for us and a very good writer. He has his own, his own uh, Substack account if you want to go over there and subscribe. It's a uh, we actually did link to it in his biography. Um, so this is a, you know, a nice opportunity to have somebody that writes and writes well. Um, he is a, a great writer, and um, he's reviewing ideas have consequences. This is an older post that he published, I think, uh, this just this past April. And, uh, but um, it, it fits, right? It's a post about Richard Weaver, whose ideas have consequences. is a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, you need to. I'm more partial to... The Southern tradition at bay, but they they both speak to the same thing, and that is the destruction of Western civilization. Now, ideas have consequences is much more philosophical than Southern tradition at bay. Southern tradition at bay is in many ways a, a work of history. Uh, this book is too. Ideas have consequences is too, but again, it's a little more philosophical. Um, but both again speak to the the South as a bulwark against this destruction of Western civilization and southern the Southern tradition as being vital to the preservation of Western civilization. And in the Southern tradition at bay, you know, this is a post-bellum look at the South. It, it's, it's how Southerners were reflecting upon themselves when the war is over, which is why I like the book so much. We focus a lot on that now. You see essentially what we're talking about today with Robert E. Lee or with you know, saying secession is treason or not treason or what the war was about. What we're doing is really reflecting on how we remember the war and remember the South and remember the Southern tradition. This is what David Blight has called, you know, memory studies, which there's another name for that. It's called history, right? But it's the attack today is not necessarily on the antebellum South and it's not necessarily on the South during the war. What the attack is over is the postbellum South and how the South chose to remember itself. It's how the South chose to remember, or even accurately, uh, we could say accurately, remembered that cataclysmic event, the war, coming to grips with what happened in that period of time, and also the society and civilization that preceded the war. What was good about it? What was bad about it? This is essentially what the Abbeville Institute does. And, and today, the assault is not necessarily on the South in the antebellum period or in the war. It's the South in the postbellum period. They say that all these people, after the war was over, lied. To put Robert E. Lee's name on, on Arlington House is to say that Americans were lying about Lee's greatness. To say that secession wasn't treason is to say that Americans are lying about the war and about American history. To say that there were honorable people in the South in the antebellum period, or that the South were good soldiers and good warriors and fought hard and did what they thought was right during the war, is to lie about what those people were. Why? Because on the other side, you have people that have decided that the Republican version of the war is the accurate version of the war, right? So the Republican Party speaking in the 1860s was the accurate version of the war for Southern independence. When they called it treason, that's true. Okay? When they said the South was evil, that's true. When the war was over, when they said the South should be fearfully punished, that's true. When the war was over and they said the South should be 
recreated? That's true. All of that is true. Anybody that opposes that is a heretic to the secular religion of American government. And if you go back into the 1830s and you look at Lincoln's Lyceum Address, this is exactly what he proposed we do. We create a secular religion in America. It's called government. And we have our our American scripture. This is why Pauline Meyer, in a book entitled The Declaration of American Scripture, because the Declaration and then the Constitution, but more importantly the Declaration to the neoconservatives, to the leftists, because of the second paragraph, is a religious relic. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And once you do that, once you have that as a basis, everything builds off of that. And so Lincoln becomes this holy figure, a demigod, who was able to transform the United States, to transcend the evil of the antebellum period and create a new America, a new nation. And of course, the South was wrestling with this. In the, in the presentation last night, Dr. Rogers mentioned, he said when Sims, after the war, was talking about the war, he, he was saying it doesn't matter what we think about the antebellum period or the postbellum period. These things actually happened, and we have to figure out how to deal with them now. And there were a lot of Southerners saying that. Uh, John Randolph Tucker, who was very famous uh, in the, after the war was over, but you know from the, from the prominent Tucker family of Virginia, another Virginia uh, part of this. Of course, Gim, uh, Sims, William Gilmore Sims in South Carolina, but Virginia, Virginia is so important. Uh, but Tucker was doing the exact same thing. Okay, so we've had these transformations in America. Now, how do we deal with it? And how do we, how do we move forward with it? How do we... How do we incorporate these things into our tradition and our way of life? How do we do that stuff? And these are things that Southerners are going to have to deal with and wrestle with for the next several generations. And we're still doing that now. The issue today is that the left and the neocons, by the way, do not like reconciliation. What they really want is Thad Stevens and Charles Sumner. They really want to continue punishing the South. But what they're getting themselves, particularly the conservatives, what they're getting themselves caught up in with that is that they don't understand that their, their vitriol against the South and their acceptance of tearing down the Confederacy is going to lead to their own demise. Because as Weaver points out in the Southern tradition at bay, we'll circle back to Weaver, and of course ideas have consequences. Even though an ideas have consequences, he goes back to the 14th century. But what, he, what everyone could see was that the South was the last conservative place in America. And it wasn't just about social issues, right? I mean, we, we can say that, of course, was, was part of it, but it wasn't just about that. And, and whether, you know, if, however you think about those social issues today, in the 19th century, uh, when people like Dabney were pointing out that Republicans were just, or conservative, American conservatives were just taking the discarded leftist positions and moving forward, we've seen that. But it wasn't just about social issues. It was also about economics, how we handled people. It was about government, what we thought about decentralization. Now, Sims, as, as Dr. Rogers pointed out, said states' rights is dead. It's gone. Now, it was, of course, in the 1860s. He's right in the middle of Reconstruction as he's writing it. Today, is it necessarily gone? I don't think so. I don't think it's gone today. I think it's revitalized because it never really died. It only was gone during Reconstruction and then the period after that because people had forgotten it. The internet has become the great leveler in all this, and the people on the other side cannot stand it. They can't stand the fact that there are people like you who listen to this podcast, or like me, or whoever, 
people associated with the Institute, people in other organizations like the Mises Institute or 10th Amendment Center, these other places, still push the idea of decentralization as a remedy for political problems in America. Why? Because it doesn't hold government as being the answer to the problem. It doesn't hold the central authority. It doesn't subscribe to nationalism. It doesn't do any of that. It looks at people as being important. It looks at the human condition as being important. And it has to have some acceptance, by the way, for diversity, which is what the left really doesn't want. They don't really want diversity. What they want is a, is a centralized, sanctioned definition of it that forces you to accept everything you don't like. Uh, and you have to speak the right language and do the right things. This is what they mean by diversity. It's not real diversity, which would be, all right, you've got these people here that exist this way and these people here that exist this way. And there's a celebration of these different cultures and societies and civilizations as the South was, right? It's something unique in America, peculiar in the original word, not as being strange, but unique. So uh, this is where the South and the Southern tradition fits within this entire American structure. And of course, you have that New England. New England is also peculiar. New England is unique in America. It is. It's, it's not the standard of America. It was always unique in America. The Quakers were unique the, I mean, all these different cultures were unique in America. And this is why someone like David Hackett Fisher is so good, because he brings all that stuff out. Whatever you think of his politics, which he's not, I mean, he's a standard establishment historian in that way, but um, his books, he has a new book out, it's called um, African Founders. It basically takes Albion Seed and applies that to Africans that came over from different parts of Africa and how those African cultures mixed with these British folkways and created something else. And I, I mean, that's a fascinating survey. It's a fascinating study. There's a whole lot to it. So uh, in the South is certainly part of that. It actually builds on Eugene Genovese's premise in Roll, Jordan, Roll, which uh, is a fantastic book about slave culture and slave society, which, of course, is certainly part of Southern society. That's something that you can't get around. It's there in the South. The places that, of course, have been untouched generally by African culture in any way are places like New England, which had you know, maybe uh, 1% or less uh, African influence at any time in its history. So uh, this, is, you know, this is something we have to understand about this. The South is much more, quote-unquote, multicultural and diverse than any other part of the United States at any time uh, in the antebellum period, and even for much of you know, leading up to the 20th century, before you have large numbers of immigrants pile into northeastern cities. Uh, so the South is a much more diverse place. And frankly, Northerners recognize that, which is why they had their slogans, you know, free soil, free labor, free men. You know, we want the territories for free white labor. They really didn't want Southerners and um, their slaves or free blacks going into those territories. So again, swinging back to Weaver, this is an attack on Western civilization, but more importantly, it's an attack on the memory of Western civilization, and the attack, the attack is on the memory of the South. Now, what's interesting about that is Southerners weren't alone in saying these things, and this, these postbellum arguments that are made that oftentimes are pejorative, used as pejoratives like the lost cause, there were Northerners saying these things in the 1860s, as early as 1861 during the war. People like Clement Vallandigham were saying things that 
a, a quote-unquote lost causer would say when the war is over. They were saying the exact same thing. So is the South making this stuff up, or is there a real historical basis for it? Well, I think you should know the answer to that. There's clearly a real historical basis. These things aren't rhetorical charges. They're, not, they're being made because these are true statements at the time. This is why we say we study what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. What isn't valuable now, we leave aside. What is valuable, we take and we explore. And this idea of decentralization, the idea that the war was a much more complex thing than just some simple, uh, as, as Anne McLean said, and that was, this is, you can't say the war, we just leveled it to slavery, because that's what it was, it's all about slavery. Uh, but, I mean, when we say there's more complex things with this, and when you start looking at the issue of slavery and all the complexities that surround that, and, of course, emancipation and abolition, that's also more complex. And that leads us to the piece by Tom Daniel on Monday, The Ballad of Confederate Abolitionists. Now, uh, one listener quibbled or reader quibbled with that term abolitionists, and it should have been emancipationists. And I think that's that's fairly accurate. I think that saying they're abolitionists, an abolitionist was someone who was looking to abolish slavery by any means necessary and doing it as an aggressive, almost militant position, and they were going to force everyone else to accept that. Emancipationists simply wanted to ensure that slaves were freed. And so Tom Daniel, who is a fantastic music historian, he writes for us a lot about music. He comes from Confederate soldiers. He's Alabama. Everything is Alabama with Tom. And he wrote this piece about his, his uh, family in, in Alabama who were part of a Baptist congregation that would purchase freedom for slaves. Now, this was not something that was easy to do in Alabama. In fact, it was essentially against the law. But um, they would do it, and, they would, and then because it became a situation where it was very hard to enforce, then counties started dealing with this stuff. And so um, his family were, were in process in the process of freeing other slaves through purchasing these slaves, of course, through the church. And a lot of these people became prominent members of their communities. But all of these Daniels fought for the Confederacy. So here you have what amount to be anti-slavery people fighting for the Confederacy. Now, that doesn't fit in the neat and tidy, neat and clean narrative of the war. Just like, and I'm sure if somebody went out and looked at this, uh, one of these leftist historians would find some way to say this wasn't really uh, abolition. This wasn't really emancipation. This was something else. This wasn't, these people don't really, that, that's not really true. No, this is true. Just like when you say that, you know, if there is a some black Southerner serving in the Confederate military in some way, well, that's not a soldier. And these people aren't doing it again. This is against their will. And these, so they would come up with some way to destroy the complexity of the situation because it doesn't fit into their allowable opinion. Their little, their little index card of allowable opinion, as Tom Woods again famously said. It's a great line. A three by five index card of allowable opinion. Uh, it doesn't fit into that, right? There's, it, it, it goes beyond the three by five cards, so you can't, it can't be right. These can't, these things can't be true. Uh, and of course, as we change language, which is another important thing, we've talked about on this uh, on this podcast before, the altering of language, even things like uh, we're seeing it right now uh, with the with the current administration. Two straight quarters of economic uh, slowing economy or negative growth is not a recession, whereas from the history of economics, that's been defined as a recession since we got from the, in the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt. It's been defined as a recession. Now it's not a recession. Uh, but we can look at other things. And I talked about this at the summer school, which you know, wrapped up a couple weeks ago, when it comes to terms like federalists and anti-federalists. Well, 
that's an early indication that language is being changed for a political reason. The Federalists weren't really Federalists. They were Nationalists. And the Anti-Federalists weren't really Anti-Federalists. They were real Federalists. They were people that were interested in a real federal republic. That's the important thing. So they were the real Federalists. It's just the, the Federalists stole the name. Right? They were the Federalists were the Nationalists. And they're doing this to change the language. Because if they say they're the Federalists and you equate federalism with nationalism, well, then that, those things become synonymous, and that distorts the entire definition of it. Whereas the anti-federalists then become, well, you're not really for the general government. You're not really for anything. You're just a bunch of, of kooks that are for extreme decentralization. You don't want any central government. But most of them weren't that way. They, they didn't mind a central authority that had very limited things that it could do. So this is where language matters. Ideas have consequences, as Weaver said, and so does language. The altering of language has consequences for a tradition and a civilization, and we see it. So if, the, if you say secession is treason, you're altering language at that point, because you have to be able to define it. I mean, you have to be able to say, okay, but if it is treason, well, how can you say it's treason uh, if you can't really uh, fit that with the definition in the Constitution, you just have to kind of make it up, right? You have to fit it somehow. Um, but if you can do that, if you can get those things to be equal, the secession becomes treason, well then, nobody that is in favor of secession, everyone, or I should say, everyone that's in favor of secession now is a, is a, is a traitor. Because a traitor to what? I mean, but it's, tra it's treason. Secession is treason. It doesn't matter. Secession is treason. And this is how the left has dominated in the, in the neocons and all, I mean, all these people, they have dominated the language. But when you think about it logically, secession isn't treason. It can't be treason. Uh, it's, it's something that uh, even Lincoln in 1846 said was a natural right of people to do, to withdraw from something they're not, they don't want to be part of. Uh, this is a natural thing for a people that have self-determination and the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. This is what you have, right? So... Uh, but this is where all these things matter. Now, a couple other pieces we had, uh, some other things this week. Um, one piece on Friday, we ran a piece by Clyde Wilson um, talking about this new Bob Elder book on Calhoun. And if you haven't read that book, um, there's some good stuff in it. I mean, I can't say that, that Bob Elder, he's, he's, a, he's a decent guy. I can't say that he hasn't written uh, something that there's valuable things in it. All I would even say someone like David Blight, who I don't agree with at all, or even someone like Eric Foner. Every now and then they say some things that are worthwhile to read and because you get some insight into something, if nothing else, for sharpening your pencil for the other side. But um, the, the, the horrible part of the book is that he somehow equates John C. Calhoun to leading to Dylan Roof in 2015, which is just silly. I mean, it's that's just a silly position. And I know why he did it. It's just like Cynthia Nicoletti, who wrote a book on uh, secession and the, and the Davis, potential Davis trial, pleaded at the beginning of the book, please don't read this book and think that I think that Southerners or Jefferson Davis or secession are good. Please don't read this book and think that. Because... If you do, I mean, she's not going to get a job, right? That's the whole problem. So Bob Elder, who teaches at a major research institution in Texas, um, is, is pleading, essentially, in doing that. He's appealing to the people that he has to rub elbows with, that he's not really that in favor of Cal Calhoun. 
uh, is not really a great guy. Um, I, even though what, if you're going to read this book, you're going to come away in some ways with thinking that Calhoun is a great guy. But I don't really think that, right? So you, you, have, to, you have to put these things in there to, to appeal to the nincompoops who run these history departments. Um, so I have a problem with it that way. But Clyde's problem, of course, is that Bob Elder didn't recognize Clyde's scholarship on John C. Calhoun in the book. And he does. And I looked it up um, when I first got the book. I said, all right, well, let's see if he cites Clyde Wilson in here. And he doesn't. He mentions him one time in the book as the editor of the John C. Calhoun papers and as the last person in the list. And um, Clyde took great offense to this because Clyde's introduction, I mean, he edited uh, nearly 20 volumes of the papers. And his introductions essentially serve as a, as a biography, a political biography, an intellectual biography of John C. Calhoun. Uh, in those in those volumes, and I think that uh, if somebody was writing a very good history of Calhoun or writing an accurate history of Calhoun, you would need to to wrestle with Clyde's positions in those introductions. And Elder does not do that. Now, um, I am of the school, of course, when I want to do things and write things, I love primary documents, and I just get right into it. Um, you can recognize other historians who have said similar things, and I think we should do that at times. But you know, Forrest McDonald was like this too. He just wanted to read the primary documents and write his own stuff. I'm not saying that, um, I don't think Bob Elder did that necessarily 100%. I think Bob Elder also recognized other people in the book, but he didn't recognize Clyde. And, and uh, so Clyde took great offense to this and um, said, you know, he used to be considered a great historian and he's not, uh, he just has, has lost that now. And I think it, it, is, a tra it is a tragedy um, that people don't recognize Clyde. Historians don't recognize Clyde as being a great historian uh, because he is, uh, because of politics, essentially, because they, they don't like his politics. And we see this all the time. You know, there are, there are certainly people on the left that will not recognize their political opponents as being great anything, because that would mean that they validate those people in some ways. Even though I can sit here and say that uh, even, you know, James McPherson, Eric Foner, uh, you know, David Blight, all these people have something valuable to say at times. James Oakes, I mean, they, they draw attention to things that you have to deal with, even when you disagree with it. Um, but the, the left will never do that. They don't ever think that. They think you draw attention to nothing. You draw attention to, to stupidity. You draw attention to just, uh, to, to nothing that matters because it's easily discounted and swept away. But why? Because it distorts their worldview. I think that historians like Clyde, and others are uh, more important because they're more willing to accept all ideas and look at things in all positions and look at them as valuable. They are real historians in that way. So, um, reading that you know piece by Clyde, and he is uh, you know he is 81 years old now, and um, I, I think that uh, that's you know he's looking back at his life and saying that you know, all the things that he's done, people won't recognize that. Uh, unfortunately, the Calhoun papers are, are hard to get, right? I mean, these volumes are very expensive, and they are hard to come by. Um, so that is part of the problem. People don't go out. They're not accessible. And, of course, University of South Carolina Press can, owns the introductions. I mean, so you can't republish those without permission. Um, so, you know, this is, um, this is something, of course, that is a problem with it, whereas Bob Elder's book, you can go to the Barnes & Noble and go pick it up, right? So... Uh, putting your, your work there in edited volumes of Calhoun's papers is not going to be as accessible as the other stuff. And so this is where people won't recognize Clyde's brilliance in these ways. Now, 
That said, we also had a couple of great pieces this week on Southern culture. We're going to wrap it up with these couple of quick hits here. One by Casey Chalk. I love it when Casey Chalk writes for us. He, he writes good stuff. And he wrote about a bourbon, which, you know, the South drink. And I think this is, you know, the, the, the art form of, you know, mint juleps and mixed drinks. It's something the South was uh, very well known for. Now, um, as, as a part of high society, they did these things. And, you know, mint juleps, we ran a piece by uh, Joyce Bennett a few weeks back on mint juleps and how there was a recipe for it and how this was an art form. It wasn't just something you ha- you just did, you just put it in, but you had to figure out the art behind it. And Southerners were always interested in that, in the particular style. It had to be something more than just utilitarian. There had to be an art to it. You look at Southern architecture, you look at the things that they did, particularly people that had a little money, and everything became an art, even Southern rhetoric. If you go back and look at the South and the Building of the Nation series, which was published in the early 20th century, there was an entire volume of that on Southern oratory, right? Because it was an art. Someone like John Randolph of Roanoke had an art. And it wasn't just utilitarian. It wasn't just, we're going to make this speech and this is how it's going to go. It had to have something to it. Southern literature followed the same pattern. Southern literature and Southern music, there has to be something to it besides just a utilitarian expression of something. And when you look at people like, you know, cultures like the Quakers, which are very utilitarian, it has to be useful. Uh, Or the Puritans. It has to be useful. Their idea of exercise had to be useful. It had to be useful exercise. It couldn't just be for fun, you know, playing a ball game or something like that. It had to be useful, or the Quakers were worse with that. The Puritans did play ball games, but it had to be useful. And so when you think about that, when you think about that contrast with Southerners, that they make something fun out of it, it's not just utilitarian anymore to make a speech to make your point. It has to be beautiful in a way it has to be something that's aesthetically pleasing and so i think that's where you know you look at chalk and when he talks about with with uh, bourbon and of course mixed drinks and then of course brandon meeks who wrote another great piece for us secondhand uh, memories where he talks about you know this uh this it's a funny story uh in a in a tent revival and singing in the tent revival and how it wasn't just utilitarian i mean this was something useful to this and so I find all this stuff fun and, uh, you know, funny. Uh, that story is just funny. I've, I've read it a couple times. It's just very funny. And, of course, you know, Brandon Meeks just has a great way to, to spin a yarn and, and uh, put a phrase together. So all these things together this week. We just had a really good week at the Institute and a really good week for the material. And we do appreciate you being on board with us and, and sharing this stuff around and letting people know about what we do. Um, it's so essential. We, we are fighting... A monumental battle when you've got people like Tim Kaine and the morons in Virginia trying to take down anything that's related to traditional Virginia. But I do have hope because I think there's enough people out there that uh, are pushing back against this now in some ways. Um, You know, Youngkin in Virginia is not the answer uh, because he said he's not going to force them to put statues and monuments back up. He should. All that stuff should be put back up. They They should be forced to reconstruct it and put it all back together right where it was. You want to drive the, ma- the left mad, that's what they should have done. And I think someone like Ron DeSantis might have done that. I'm not saying Ron DeSantis is the answer either, but he's a little more aggressive in going after the left. He might have done that. He might have said, okay, here's what's going to happen. All those things were taken down, they go back up. And that would have been so funny. I mean, the response would have been absolute hilarity coming from the left. These people would have lost, absolutely lost their loving minds. They would have not known what to do 
um, it would have been something phenomenal to see, almost as good as after the Dobbs decision and how that happened. But regardless, um, it's uh, you know great stuff this week, and we're looking forward to next week. And until next time, good day.